Good evening and welcome to episode 17 of In at the Side. I'm Dom Harbin. I'm joined by JK and Samara O'Neill. And this evening we're joined by the man who does this. Yes, of course, we're joined by former Wallabies captain James Horwell. How are you this evening, James? Good, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, all good, thank you. Uh, what were you getting up to during the lockdown then? Um, been, yeah, a fair bit, actually. It's been, um, it hasn't really changed too much for us. I'm, um, I'm, I'm doing an MBA at Cambridge at the moment, so that's sort of just all turned online. So it um, hasn't really changed a lot for us in terms of... Uh, the coursework, it's just spending too much time on Zoom, in, um, <laughs> hence the ridiculous background when you're spending sort of six, seven hours a day on, on, a, on Zoom calls. Um, and a bit of work with our, the company I'm working for, we're, we're doing, trying to, we've adjusted a little bit to make some PPE uh, back in Australia for nice. face visors. So we're, we're an automotive accessories manufacturer. Uh, and make a lot of sheet plastic, and so we've we've shifted to making PPE visors and looking to distribute them here in the UK. So nice. that's kept me busy for the last couple of weeks uh, mm. under the coronavirus. But so yeah, it's been. Um, I guess all things considered, it hasn't been too bad. I don't leave the house much, but um, yeah. yeah, all safe and well. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, um, I thought we'd start with obviously one of the bigger topics concerning. Uh, Australian rugby, and obviously Raylene Castle um, resigning. Um, you know, she. You know, there's a lot of talk of her inheriting the issues when she took over, and then there's been a lot of talk of you know identity politics. You know, have you got any any views on that? Have you heard anything other people may not have? No, not not overly. I think you know. I think Raylene. Uh, it's it's a bit more difficult for me to comment because I haven't been there since she's been the. The CEO, so I haven't been able to probably see firsthand um, what uh, the impact that she's had uh, behind the scenes. Um, yeah, she any of my dealings with her have been, you know, very good. She 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 tried very hard. She was making a lot of effort, uh, particularly with the ex players uh, and the classics, uh, what we call the classic wallabies, which is a it's a big group and they do a lot of work uh, in the community back in, in Australia and, you know, her correspondence through the classics has been, um, was always great. And, you know, look, I think there's been a lot of talk about things she's inherited, which is no doubt true. And I think that's been going on for a while in Australian rugby. Um, you know, obviously the situations with Israel, the COVID-19 situation, you know, stuff that you probably would never really expect to happen being yeah. CEO of a, of a um, of a sporting code within within Australia, so look, it's been tough for her and for the code. Um, you know, there's no doubt there's some big issues that need to be fixed within Australian rugby, uh, within the, the Super Rugby system as well. I think needs to, needs a big looking at, and I, and so that's um, you know, there's no doubt that there needs to be change, and I guess this might this. As unfortunate as what you know, her resigning and obviously the COVID nineteen situation, it, it it can give us a 
a clean slate to almost go, look, this is where we need to re readjust everything, relook at everything, the way we function, the way we operate, the governance behind the game, the, the impact on community rugby uh, within Australia and also how we play at the professional level and ultimately how can we make the Wallabies win and that's what we need. That's sort of like where it all geared up and I think we haven't had that sort of clean slate moment. We've always sort of picked and there's been changes here and there but it hasn't been, okay, this is it. We've got a new coach coming in. Uh, you know, one of the most, I think, I'm, I'm really excited about the coaching group that they've put together. I mean, it's probably the best total group I've seen at a Wallaby level um, for a very long time. Uh, you know, obviously a new CEO, there's a new chairman coming in um, as Paul McLean's only interim. There's three or four new members of the board. So this this is a chance to, and we just got to make sure we get it right because um, yeah. that's the important part. So do you think, obviously, um, some of the things going around is uh, that she was pushed design side of things. Do you think it's an element of that or was it she's just had enough uh, of what's happening and obviously feels the same way as you said what you're saying is rugby australia needs a clean slate well i think it's a little bit of all of it I, I, I you know i think she's put up with a lot um and you know a lot of it's a bit unfairly particularly from the public scrutiny i think has been been unfair and and um you know you, you i'm only going what i can read in the in the press and you know there's been un, unfortunate uh, attacks on her and <laughs> you know i think as I said, in situations that she can control. But uh, I think there's an element of, there's an opportunity for a clean slate. And I think the board might be seeing that now. Um, as we said, with this situation, while it's bad and, you know, the, the code's losing a lot of money, we weren't in a great financial state to begin with before COVID hit. We need a new, there's a new TV rights that they're negotiating at the moment. Um, Super Rugby's popularity is waning, not just in Australia, across New yeah. Zealand, South Africa. There's a whole raft of things put in. I don't think it's a simple thing, but there's certainly rugby is at a is at a quite a low point within Australia, and that's the disappointing part. And that's where we need to build it up, and that starts at the grass grassroots level of rugby. We need to build popularity. We need to build participation at that level. Get the kids loving and wanting to play rugby again, because as with uniquely. Australia, we have so many other options that you can play, you can watch, you can support compared to any other country. And the, and the games are all quite similar. Um, and there is no, con you know, I, I don't think there's that. Well, there isn't another country in the world that has three full-time, full-contact sports that are all played at the same time, yeah. in the same stadiums. And we've only got a population of 25 million people, which is about a third of what the UK is. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's a... It's a very congested marketplace for yeah. hearts and minds, for sponsorship dollars, for TV dollars, for everything. So it, it's it's really unique in what it is at the moment. And I think a lot of people that don't probably appreciate Australian sporting landscape don't probably appreciate how complex and how round it is. You can sit at home on, the, on a Saturday night and you can watch three games of rugby league, there's three games of rugby on, there's three games of AFL on, all from your couch, all on at the same time. And you, yeah. you've got to pick. Plus, you've got community rugby on and community sports on in the afternoon. So it's it's really, really difficult to work out that space. But, um, yeah, that's, that's what rugby need to do, in my opinion. Yeah, and obviously looking into uh, obviously, at the moment, um, so I've got a friend who's from Australia and he's uh, been looking into sporting as a whole. And Australia is having – this situation now is going to have a massive effect on sport as a whole in Australia. You look yeah. at the NRL, yes, probably less so because they are privately backed. 
Obviously, Australia's already had financial situation issues and it's now going to be more. And the AFL, well, they're seemingly going to be knackered after all yeah. that. They're not public funded. They're not they are literally on their, on their arse, essentially. But mm. sporting as a whole in the egg-shaped game is a big problem. Yeah. And, and look, I think the, the big thing is that you can see, you know, AFL is by far and away in Australia. It's, it's, it's sort of open to football here a little bit, is that, that it is the most supported game. You know, mm. it's regularly to 80 to 90,000 people go watch a game. Um, it is the most financially secure code that we have and they're, you know, struggling. So that probably puts it in perspective. You know, they've had to go to the, to the, to the government and get, you know, loans in the millions and millions of dollars just to sort of prop up their cash flow to get through. And, you know, their, their players, have, you know, players across the AFL and the NRL have taken cuts of 60 to 80% total of their salary until this gets, gets sorted. And, you know, in, in the same in Australia, Australian rugby players have taken... I think about a 60% cut on what their salary is. So it's a situation that probably no one appreciated how bad it could be uh, and it would have the impact. And I know that the codes are doing everything they can to um, get it back as quickly as possible. I know Rugby League are talking about being back on the 28th of May, which yeah. um, you know, is, it seems to be crazy early. Uh, and you know, I know I've got, got mates that work in the AFL, and they're saying, "Look, we are we're playing the. We need to get a season in this season, no matter if it's shortened or whether we're playing the, the grand final on New Year's Eve. There needs to be a season this year just to get the, the revenue back into the game." Yeah, yes. The thing it's not just it's not just the teams that suffer. Obviously, you know, so it's the same worldwide. Any any town that's you know heavily into their sport, whether it be rugby, cricket, football, no matter what. They're going to feel the pinch. It's the knock-on effects of the families, the people that own the little businesses. And, you know, it's, 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 it's massively going to knock us for, for years, I think, personally, for years to come. We're going to be sort of catching up financially, not just in the, in the sporting world, but, you know, in, in every aspect. So it's, it's scary times at the moment, but, you know, we hope it all goes back to normal. Yeah, look, I think, I think you're right there. And I think the, the normality, I don't know how that long that'll be. I look, I, I think... We'll see sport played with no fans, unfortunately, for a period of time. Um, and I think that'll come to normality because, you know, from a professional level, unfortunately, you know, we might not see sport at a at an amateur or a grassroots level, which is the disappointing part because we, as we spoke about, we want the kids playing whatever yeah. sport it is, rugby, cricket, football, whatever they want to go out, get outside and, mm. and you know, not only for their own, you know, well-being and health and fitness, but also from the social aspect, you know, playing team sports, how beneficial that is for everyone. Mm. So look, it, it, this, the, the, the wide ranging impact of this crisis, um, you know, a sport is probably where it's being, magnified almost the most because it's something you know and it shows you how much people like watching sports so it, it sort of works both ways it sort of makes the value of it go up that people are like i'll do anything to watch a game of, a game of football a game of sport live sport just put it on i don't care what it is i watch it yeah. and also to the fact that you know it's it's so fragile that this a virus that is obviously catastrophic and it's it, it just brought the whole sporting industry globally to its knees mm. So do you think, obviously, uh, last point before we move on, do you think with Rayleigh stepping down now and the new chairman CEO coming in, it's a tough task, a tough ask of the new chairman and the new board and the new system of Rugby Australia, given the financial impact, because grassroots are obviously going to 
Bolter that mm. threw up into the professional game. And obviously, Australia is already at that moment where it's it's going to go either up, it's going to go up, or it's just going to nosedive. You think this is the situation? This situation has now made that ten times tougher, and maybe is the kind of the worst possible time for Raylene to have uh, stepped down. Well, you can look at it both ways. I think you can, as a new person coming in, it's an it's an opportunity because it's not going to get much lower. You know, it's, <laughs> you, you, you're at the, you're at the bottom now, basically. From a from a point of view, with financially, no crowd, obviously with this crisis going on, and you have almost a clean slate in front of you to to read and go. You've got a new new TV rights. So you you're not inheriting someone else's TV rights that you've put together and and you know might not have liked. You can look. They're talking about new structures for Super Rugby and what does that look like? You have an impact. You have a chance to alter what that might look like. So therefore, you don't have look. I've inherited this, and it's not. So I think there's a huge opportunity for whoever takes it on. Um, while it would have been good to have some continuity to get into this process and sort of work out where how it's going to work. And, and Raylene's done a good job. They've finally got to deal with the players. Um, you know, they've worked out how they work with the staffs and the, and the state unions. So I think, yes, it, it would have been nice to have some continuity, but with the change that's happening, it's almost a, it's a fantastic opportunity for someone that wants to do it. Yeah. To, to come in and make significant change. And that's what you, I guess you want to see as an administrator is come in an opportunity to make such big change that could alter the, the way the game's played for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, so Super Rugby, obviously, um, you talk about the numbers dwindling in the stadiums, TV viewing, you know, is, is getting pretty low as well compared to what it has been. You know, what would you say you know, sets it apart from the other two codes we've discussed, obviously, you know, it's, it's on the decline, you know, what, what's your opinion on, on, on the, on the, uh, the reasons behind that? Um, I think the, it, it, the, the, a couple of things. I think the competition expanded too quickly. Um, I think the, you know, it, it sort of peaked out at, there was a period there where we sort of got to, you know, each year that I played, you know, I started, when I started playing Super 12, then the next year it was Super 14, then two years later it was Super 15. And I think it expanded purely for the greed of putting more games on TV without actually worrying about what the content is. Um, I think they were too concerned in focusing on going to new new areas, going to new venues and trying to make it expand and it, and I think in Australia we didn't have the capacity to hold five teams simple I think we can we could get you know when you look at when Australian teams are all very good you know we had three teams the Brumbies the Reds and the Waratahs I think the force added an element to that to the west of the country which has got a huge big rugby supporter base particularly yeah. the number of expats a lot of British people live there and obviously a lot of um, South Africans live there as well so it gives them and there is no rugby league in Perth. It's AFL. It's an AFL town, so it gave them a, a, another another sport to focus if they weren't AFL fans. Um, I think the that and the convoluted way that the competition was run across different time zones made it really hard for people to follow. Yeah. Uh, we we lost the the rivalry, the 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 sort of the the mentality of that sort of tribalism, um, which I think rugby does really well here in the UK. 
personally. I think that's one of the things, you know, you're not playing a big, but you've got those trials. You go to these towns that, you know, this Leicester, this is a, you know, this is a rugby town. You come to Leicester town, whether they're going really well or really bad, they've still got pretty full stadium and they're making a lot of noise. And the tribalism is there. They've got their own stadium. They're playing in, you know, small boutique, you know, local venues that are owned by the club. So, you know, the, the people that go to watch the games feel they have an ownership of that club, whereas Super Rugby's played in these great stadiums, you know, Suncorp, Eden Park, you get to play in these stuff that hold 60,000 people each week. And I mean, if you, it's like playing a club game at Twickenham every weekend. You're not going <laughs> to, it's going to look, it's going to look empty. Yeah. You know, even if we played a Quinns game or a Tigers game, like every week at Twickenham, you'd go, well, the stadium's empty. It looks, look, there's no one there watching. Mm. Um, so I think that has an impact on what people look like uh, and people just lost touch with it. And I think it's now time to increase the tribalism back to, particularly for Australian rugby. Um, I think the time zone issue is, is, is a big one because, you know, when you're watching games in, if your team's playing in South Africa and you're living in Australia, your games run at 1, 2 a.m. in the morning um, and it's not, it's not a suitable time zone. There's all these new teams coming in. People didn't know where they were from. And I think that was the difficulty. And I think it's just lost the the tribal, the, the impact that it used to have. This is easier than, this is easier than some of the uh, Pro 14 teams. Who have to be England and, yeah. and Wales, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, sorry, you touched on Super Rugby there, obviously. I know, obviously, you, you did around 11 years of it, um, you know, in total. Then you came over to, to England, obviously, in that time... You know, Captain Australia, very successful with them as well. Mm. Um, in terms of Super Rugby compared to the Premiership, <clears throat> which would you say is a harder league? Which which would you say is more you know, testing? Um, well, the Premiership is much more attritional. It's much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, the season goes for much longer. I mean, Super Rugby, when I started, was basically a sprint. You know, it was literally... Every game, you, you drop two or three games and you're almost out of the, the running because it was top four. Mm. It, that was the final, top four out of 12. It was literally, you drop three or four ga- three games and it's like, well, you're not really going to make the finals here, boys. It's, you know, you sort of prep for next year. And, but the intensity of each game was so important because, it, you know, it meant everything. You wouldn't go away and go, geez, we're a bit off it today. We're not, you know, we're going to try it. It was like a grand final. You know, every week we had, you had to be on it. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with, as I said, the smaller numbers, you know, you're playing teams that were, you know, any New Zealand team was jammed full of all blacks. We go to South Africa, yeah. playing the Bulls at Loftus, you know, basically the Springbok Ford pack, you know, these sort of teams in their, in their peak, you know, the 07 Bulls and these guys was basically the, the Ford pack that won the World Cup. Um, and <clears throat> so that it, it is a completely different style of rugby. I think, one of the, the great things that I, I used to like about Super Rugby was that the teams played such different rugby. So you play a Kiwi team one week and you know, okay, it's all it's all going to be off the cuff. They're going to offload. They're going to play quick lineouts, quick taps. It's all unstructured. They want to play unstructured. Mm-hmm. Then the following week, you play the Bulls at home. So you go, okay, these guys are on a mall. They're a bit more route one direct. So it's a completely different game style. And then you'd play an Australian team that would be sort of a mix between both depending on which... Australian team you end up playing. So the Waratah, uh, the Brumbies, you know, very good set piece, but a bit more structured with the way they attack, uh, played a bit more position focused. So each week was completely different. Whereas I think in the Premiership, pretty much everyone does the same thing. You know, they, you know, five metres out from their own line, they're going to maul to box kick. 
scrum is going to be penalty first, then they'll kick. You know, no rugby's played out of their 22. Um, you know, anywhere, if the weather's bad, anywhere up to halfway, it's going to be basically more box kick, see what happens, chase, you know. It, it's the, the the attritional part is, is much greater. And, you know, you particularly as a tight forward, you make a lot more tackles. It's the, the speed isn't as high, but the, the attritional element, a lot more mauling, a lot more longer scrums. So it's a, it is tough in that aspect, but it is a different way to what Super Rugby is. Super Rugby is about, it's about keeping the ball in play as long, as quickly as possible, uh, not allowing the defences to get set, um, you know, playing on top of teams, quick, quick, quick. Yeah. Uh, and, Southern Hemisphere away. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. I saying, would, would you say that Super Rugby players would be very, very akin to, to switching quite easily to sevens um, because of that reason, or is it a completely different ballpark? Um, well, it's probably a bit more of a different ballpark now um, that sevens has become sort of it's almost its own sport. I think, I mean, I know coming through that anyone that was basically a, a back row or a back mm. coming through the system in Australian rugby would almost get put into a, a season of sevens. Like we, you know, anyone that had any gas, you know, big end, big motors, these sort of guys. So basically if you're a back rower or, you know, an outside or inside back, a lot, most of them, unless you were sort of straight in the super game, they'd send you for, you know, when you're 18, 19, do a circuit of sevens, um, see the world, they'd all, you'd get capped for Australia, so you couldn't go play for another country if you had another passport. That's why most New Zealand players were sevens before they went to Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, there's no it's doubt. They definitely, I mean, James O'Connor, I think, played for the sevens when he was like 17 or something. They basically, Ooh. the day he left school, they just went, yeah, you're going to go play sevens now because he, <laughs> he had a South African passport and a New Zealand passport somehow. So, he could have played for anyone <laughs> and then they just went yeah yeah you're going to play seventh now you can't play for anyone else <laughs> excellent so obviously Queensland born and bred yeah big NRL uh, area obviously three, well, three NRL teams Titans Cowboys and Broncos yeah yeah yeah. what made you pick the correct rugby in the end um, <laughs> it's, it's, to be honest I, I grew up playing AFL I know that's um, so my dad and his family <clears throat> from Victoria and Victoria yeah. AFL is like religion you know that, that's what you do you just and so I grew up in Queensland playing AFL um, and it wasn't until I went to, to school I went to a private school in Brisbane and my body shape sort of suited to rugby and I remember that I distinctly didn't want to play rugby I wanted to continue playing AFL I didn't like rugby I didn't want to do it and it was sort of like pushed on me a bit you know dad and mum are like no no you're going to play you'll enjoy it you'll enjoy it my body shape suited it much more and then that was it basically I never I never played rugby league um I used to play both AFL and rugby so rugby was on a Saturday AFL was on a Sunday um up until I was probably about 15 um through school and and then yeah the school it sort of took off and then I just yeah loved it and was lucky enough to have a few different things for my way coming through academies and new te- you know opportunities arise and I got, was able to take them when they came and you know mm. I ended up playing professional rugby for 14 15 years which I never ever thought would be the case nice. <laughs> obviously you debuted in the super 14 with the reds I bet that yep. was a big moment obviously Queensland born great thing to go uh, out for the reds against New South Wales it's a big game uh, giving his debut. Um, you weren't actually 
in the original squad, were you? No, so the way the squads used to work back there, you used to have, they used to have, a, I think it was 32 or 30, because yeah, because it was back in the bench when you only used to have one front row reserve and it was 22. So you used to have 30 or 31, and then you'd have what I'd call like three wider training squad or um, I think elite performance squad or something like that, or EPS yeah. players. That you, that you, you did everything, you trained with the team, but you weren't, you were sort of like on a rookie almost contract and you once you started playing, you had to play, I think, three or four games and then you got included into a a, um, a t- the, the, the full-time squad. So that was basically, I played with the uh, Australian under 21, under 21s, yeah, the year <coughs> before and injured my shoulder. So I had a full shoulder reconstruction and I'd already sort of signed on for the Reds. I've been through the academy and I'd signed on because of you know, Nathan Sharp and Rudy Vedelago, these guys had left to go to the force. Um, and so there was, we, we lost a lot of our forward pack. So I came in and, you know, rehabbed my shoulder through the preseason and got a chance in the last trial. We played the Highlanders um, over in uh a uh, place in New Zealand called Umaru, which is sort of in the South Island between Dunedin and Christchurch. And um, I played pretty well in that game. And then somehow I got the call to say that I was on the bench um, that for the, the first game. And then after that, I didn't, I didn't miss a game for about three years, which was um, nice. mm. crazy. It just sort of amazing where it sort of went to. And um, yeah, couldn't, never thought it would happen so quickly in the way it did. So going going out against the Tars in your debut game, knowing that there there's a big rivalry there, were you absolutely bricking it? Was it nineteen years old? Yeah, eighteen, nineteen. I, I um, running out for the Reds, hometown. Were you shitting it? I don't know if I was shitting it. I mean, it was a big game because um, Wendell Saylor had left the Reds the year before, yeah, um, and gone to play for the Waratahs. So it was his first. Um, game back and as our so obviously Big Dell top bloke but you know was quite polarising sort of guy and <laughs> played, he played Origin for Queensland he was a Queenslander and then going to play for the the arch enemy like it was it was it was a big thing and you know I know our our, our it was the first game so our front office <clears throat> you know were quite aggressive with their marketing campaign about you know getting into Dell and we ended up having about 40,000 people at the stadium pretty much just to give Dell shit um, and get stuck <laughs> into it. Um, and so it was, it was a bit of a crazy time. And so, you know, it's just more of excitement takes over and you end up, I remember coming off the bench and for a blood bin like early in the first half. And then you're just running around like a headless troop, not knowing what you're doing. You're just like going, just flying into everything, doing absolutely nothing of value. Just like, running from sprinting from one side and you come off and you've been only on been on the field for like seven minutes and you're like dying just going <laughs> <laughs> and you've done absolutely nothing of worth for the team but you've you feel like you've made an impact but yeah look it was um it was cool to be able to do it in front of all my mates and you know I had a big group of friends <laughs> um, that I grew up with uh and obviously all my family uh were there and yeah and they and pretty much were there for every game that I ever played in Queen at Queensland so it was um it was a special place and you know it had a lot of fond memories at that stadium what were the uh, what were the sort of stars you were was that the, was that the uh the sort of Genia Cooper era uh it was a bit before then we were when I started so it was more the we, we had sort of like Elton Flatley 
um, Ben Chun, Chris Latham, uh, David Croft, guys like Hugh McMinimum, Steve Moore. Um, mm. They were the guys that, are, that in that sort of first team. Um, Nick Berry was there, who's now the referee. Um, yeah, so those guys were there for my first little bit. And then the sort of the Cooper, Genias of the world sort of came in a year or two later, um, sort of end of 2000, 2007-ish, uh, when Eddie took over uh, as coach for a season. And then he only lasted a year. And then we, we had, I had about my first four years of professional rugby, I had four new, four head coaches. So it was, um, wow. yeah, four, yeah, four, first five years I had four, four coaches. Right. So, it's like, uh, that's like the Premier League stats, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, we had one year, the guy saw me, then Eddie came, he lasted a year, then Phil Mooney came for two years, 08, 09. He lost his job, then Ewan McKenzie came, um, and he lasted. Yeah, and then we, we were obviously quite successful under him and then he got the Wallabies job and then a, a new coach came in. Nice. So, obviously, you played for, you know, some massive teams, you obviously, including, you can't forget, Australia, captain in Australia to, was it third place in 2011 at the World Cup? Is that Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, now, obviously, out of all these different experiences, the one you just explained there, uh, um, you know, and, and all the other ones you've had, what would you say would be your best rugby highlight today? What really sticks with you? Is it, would it be that first experience? Um, look, you can't sort of give away the first time you play for your country and first time you play for your, your state. Um, being a Queenslander, I, you know, it was more than playing for a franchise. Queensland meant a lot to me. Um, yeah. I mean, probably the, the, the highlight for me is winning the Super Rugby title um, in Queensland. Um, mm. That... I mean, obviously, winning was was amazing, and and the, but I think the impact of where we'd come from, as a group, you know, we'd been through a lot of tumultuous time with the with the province. We, as I said, we'd had a number of coaches. I mean, my Eddie's last game, we lost ninety two three to the Bulls in Softus. <coughs> like we we were we were almost the laughing stock of um, of Australian, or definitely the laughing stock of Queensland sport, because at that time the the AFL team had sort of come off three, you know, early 2003 premierships in a row, made four grand finals. The Broncos, you know, won, I think, in 06. So we weren't, we were like the laughing stock, the, you know, the Reds, you know, who cares about these guys? And then to be able to build up to the season, you know, we had a lot of lean years. We brought in new guys, a lot of changing coaches. And then to sort of all culminate in the 2011 season where, the start of the season, you know, the stadium was underwater. We had a we had huge floods through Brisbane that, you know, unfortunately took away masses of homes. It was a, you know, the the stadium itself, Suncorp Stadium, was under two meters of water. Um, they had to redo all the the change rooms. I mean, we were getting changed into mountables in the car park, um, you know, and and to then, you know, the impact of the the, the floods on Queensland to then sort of create a the momentum. Um, to get to basically, you know, averaging 35,000 people per week at a, at a ground when we couldn't get 10,000 like two, three years before. We sold out, you know, the sec, you know, the final home game, the semi-final and the final at home, 52,000 people. At the time, set a record for the biggest crowd ever at Suncorp Stadium. <laughs> and, I, I mean, it was just, to me, it was just a culmination of all that put together. And um, I know the effort that had gone into it from everyone made it just so 
such a special time. And I think that, to me, um, will probably has been my fondest memory because one of the, the achievement with the people I did it with, because these are the guys that I, you know, we'd played together since sort of a lot of us sort of 08, a lot of the guys had played together. And these are guys that I'm still very, very close with to this day. And I think that's what makes it, you know, that special. And it's something that I'll, I'll never forget, that's for sure. Awesome. So obviously um, you got the chance to captain the side in 2013 against the, the Mighty Lions. Yeah. Not biased <laughs> in the slightest. Don't <laughs> Obviously, and again, I'm obviously bringing this up, marred by a bit of controversy on your, <laughs> I believe. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it is noted controversially um, dropped charges for the thing, uh, Alwyn Jones, which I will never condone in a public forum, privately, elsewhere. <laughs> but um, obviously, how was that? I was captaining that side with some great names in the team uh, against the Lions. Obviously, it's, it's quite. Yeah. yeah, look, I think, you know, first of all, the Lions, the, the whole Lions experience is is awesome. And I think the whole concept needs to continue. I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk that it should change. You know, I think it's one of the last true rugby traditions that, you know, with the midweek games, the travelling support that they get, um, you know, and I think, we could, you know, living here in the UK, I sort of experienced it from the other side in 2017. And then there's obviously the build up to the, 2021 next year in South Africa happens every four years for the country that it goes to it only happens every 12 years so realistically there's only you're only ever going to get one chance to do it as a yeah. player I mean I think George Smith is the only player ever to play in two line series um, in 2001 and 2013 so the the, the specialty of it is not lost on the guys that you're playing against because it's you know this is the once and your career, you get one shot at this. It's not like World Cups. Most, you know, if you if you feel that you can keep your body going, you should you you could get a couple of you know guys played three World Cups, no no mm. problems. Uh, Bledisloe's these sort of things they come around every year. This is this is once yeah. you get a crack at yeah. this, and the support that came with it, uh, and not not only from a test level, but the provincial level. These are the, there's a lot of guys that are never going to play test rugby that are playing. Uh, at a provincial level. And this is their closest they're ever going to get to playing test rugby against the test side. Mm. Because nowadays, you know, you don't have the All Blacks or the, you know, England coming over and doing a, you know, a four-week tour and playing two midweek games against provinces. That doesn't, just because of the scheduling, just doesn't happen, and probably rightly so. But this is an opportunity to do that. And I think you, we focus on the test, but, you know, the importance it was to these guys that played in these midweek games you know, I, I remember we that we weren't allowed to play as in the guys that had been named in the Wallaby squad in a certain amount of the provincial games. So mm-hmm. no matter what state. And the Queensland game was, I think, a week or eight days before the first test at mm-hmm. Suncorp. And we were in camp and we were told we weren't allowed to play. We'd been told even though there was stacks of time to go. Actually, I think it might have been longer than that. There was stacks of times. We and, like, I remember that there was myself, Quaid, and we'll get you particularly um, were, were filthy that we couldn't play for the Reds against the Lions because I knew mm. that we, you know, it was just an opportunity that was, this is your team that you grew up playing with and you've always won, and you've got a chance to play against the Test with all your mates. Mm. And I knew the game plan that we were going to implement was going to be fun. So I was like, well, this is really annoying. I, you know, it was one of the games that I wish I got the opportunity to play. But yeah, look, the series, the fans, and you know, were 
brought the best out of the Australian fans. It's the, the most loud and boisterous I've ever heard our fans. And I think that is purely in response to what the British and Irish Lions fans brought. Yeah. You know, I still, the first, I think even to this day, the first test in Suncorp was the loudest I'd ever heard our national anthem sung um, at, a, at, a, at a home fixture. And I think, you know, while the result didn't go away and there was all the other the stuff on the side for me that we can go into if you, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was, that was a distraction that I probably didn't need. Um, but yeah. the, the, the concept itself um, is, is amazing. And, I, and I, I really, besides the result and the, the other stuff, the, the, the little incident, um, it, it was an amazing experience. And I think it, you know, for me being a rugby person in Australia, we talked about before, it was the time for that period, six weeks over there, that rugby was on the front pages, it was on the back page. Yeah. It was number one sport in that country for that period of time. And that hasn't, doesn't happen very often. Probably the last time it happened before 2013 was the 2003 World Cup when we were hosting it. Mm. We won't talk about that either. <laughs> yeah, no, we probably shouldn't talk about that either. But <laughs> we can if you want. But um, obviously, before, before my time. Anything, the only thing I'll touch <laughs> on the, the incident, per se, yeah, um, because obviously we all know what happened. We could see it from the from the sidelines. We we see that what was going on with the IRB, uh, World Rugby now. Obviously, mentally though, obviously, how did that affect you going into all this, and how did you overcome? You were being all over the newspapers, and uh, obviously in Australia, how did you kind of switch off that to carry on doing what you had to do as captain? Yeah, look, it, it, uh, it was tough. Um, you know, I, I think the initial part that it came, and I only found out that it. The, the process had started on the Sunday morning um, after the first test. So we obviously lost the first test in, you know, quite a disappointing way. You know, we felt we were on top at the end. We had a, you know, kick to, uh, and it, you know, KB slips over, which which happens in life. And, you know, so it was, a, you know, it was a bit of a, bit of a down. And we're like, okay, we, you know, you, you're still a bit flat from the, from the game. Get that news. You, you're like, okay. So we, you then know, never been through that process. You're like, okay, let, let's just isolate what I need to do from a rugby point of view and what I need to do for the incident and try and keep them as separate as possible, which is mm. easier said than done. Um, I guess the good thing was that the, the process was done quite quick, early in the week. I think on the Monday, it was the, the hearing. So I was going, okay, well, look, at least I'm going to know mm. whichever way it goes at the beginning of the week. Um, so it was like, okay, Sunday's a pretty light day. We travelled to Melbourne, met with our our team to sort it out, had and then Monday did the training that we need to, and then I knew that I had the process Monday night. Um, you know, long process, went through all that, um, got the news that I was cleared, so it was you know, obviously a huge relief um that, that had happened and that I was cleared to play. So I was like, Okay, that's great, let's move on, you know done in my mind it was done move on let's next thing not knowing that there was a ability to appeal the process um from an irb point of view um or world rugby point of view so that really came as a shock to me because it came what day was it wednesday or the third i think there was a there was the last minute that you could appeal the process Mm. and they got in within like an hour to spare of when, the, which I didn't realise at the time. I just got tapped on the shoulder. I'm like, okay, they're reviewing the process. They're going to appeal their own decision. I'm like, that doesn't sort of make much sense. But, um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'll be appointed, 
judiciary officer, they're going to appeal his decision. I'm like, isn't it usually work the other way? Um, anyway, the good news was that it was like, okay, you've you've got you can play this weekend. They're not going to they're not going to keep you out. It'll happen after the, the second test. And so then I was like, okay, when that was the case, it was just like it's not even an issue for me at this point in time. I don't need to worry about it because we need to keep this test series alive. We had a big game coming up and that, and it literally, once I got the information, it was like, it didn't, uh, it wasn't, it was in the back of my head and I was very conscious about not protruding the image that there was something hanging on me to the, up to the team. Yeah. And obviously publicly as well, um, you know, as a captain in these series, you have to do a lot of media work. Um, and it was just like, I'm not talking about it. It is what it is. We'll deal with it after the game. I'll deal with it after the game. The game's the most important thing. And that's the way I approached it. Um, obviously, we win the game. And again, very um, you know, tense circumstances down to the last kick where um, fortunately for us, Lee Halfpenny didn't have the legs on his kick um, from halfway. And then obviously, I was quite emotional after that game. And that was probably the, the indication of that it all bottled up inside me. It was the first time I'd probably, you know, caught up in the emotion of a test. You know, hearts in your mouth that, come on, please miss this kick. You know, we've done so well to get back into the game and get take the lead. Um, and I knew what was riding on it from a country point of view that we need, wanted, we need to get to the side because we had a chance to win, get to there. A lot of emotion on my end, probably knowing that, you know, that this is going to be a tough slog to get through this next bit. You know, they're not appealing their own decision without something in their mind from my head. So... Um, that's why the emotional sort of outpouring for me, um, because I'd probably bottled it up and not actually spoken about it. It was just, I don't think I even talked about it to my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, or my parents. It was just like, no, nah, it's not, I'll deal with it after the game, deal with it after the game. And that's where it's probably not a healthy thing mm-hmm. in terms of like mental health. And we're talking about these sort of things in, in, a, in, a, in hindsight, we probably should have um, spoken to someone privately about that just to deal to manage my emotions and, and issues better and so when you're looking back that would have been a thing and then obviously the again we had the Sunday night um, I think it was a Sunday yeah Sunday night hearing so we'd flown to Sydney the next the next on the Sunday Sunday night hearing um, the the hearing the the judiciary officer in the hearing was in Canada um, so we'd done it all via video link. Uh, there was all a bunch and so we didn't get a result you know there was no immediate result it was sort of like okay thanks I'm going to sleep on it so obviously got no sleep that night um, woke up in the morning still no result mm. finally got to the gym and then the team manager came into our gym session and sort of tapped me on the shoulder said come outside and I'm like okay this is the moment of truth this is where I find out whether I'm in or I'm out and found that I was not guilty again or they they didn't overturn the decision, I think was the, you know, because the, the legality of the legal um, part of the discussion was more about whether you, they could actually, whether the decision was made rightly, not whether the decision was right or wrong. Um, yeah. Uh, so look, that, that was, a, that was a big emotional um, weight that sort of lifted and then it turned again to the game. And, you know, I, I think maybe we'd probably, uh, and I know I'd probably played the, the game the week before. And we, I think we we went probably a bit light on it training that week. Uh, we probably, in hindsight, might have trained a bit harder if we had, you know, gone a bit more aggressive at it. 
you know, we, we sort of, you can go two ways. You can keep it normal and go hard or just sort of flatten everything off and go, we've done everything we can. The team's not going to change too much. Let's just freshen us up and let us, you know, hopefully jumping out of these skins come, come Saturday. And it unfortunately didn't work for us. We were outplayed in that final game. There was no question about it. We, you know, the, the better team won that game. Um, on the, the third test, but um, yeah, it was it was certainly an emo- a roller coaster of emotions. Is probably the definition of it. You know, up down, up down, up down. Would you would you like to see a Southern Hemisphere version of the Lions? So, say a team made up of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Um, yeah. and you could still play in the oh, same. Don't forget Japan. Oh, Japan! I wasn't thinking Japan, but then no New Zealanders would get in the team, would they? So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it, it would be it would be great, but I, I think you'd struggle to get the the, um, the the like the distance between the countries and the and the differences in culture and the way we approach things. I think is almost too vast to to like. It'd be great to do it as like a you know maybe a fundraiser for for the COVID-19 situation or something like that, play a game with the Lions, play the, like a like a Southern Hemisphere 15. Yeah. I think that'd be amazing. Yeah. Wouldn't that be the Barbarians? Like, basically, you, you <laughs> could play the Barbarians, but might make it, like, not an actual Barbar's week where you're on the yeah. drink for, for seven days before a test. <laughs> Actually go, let's treat it seriously and go at it pretty hard. But look, and I then think... Drink, get, then get on the drink after. Then get on the drink for a week after. <laughs> um all Andy look, dude on it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it'd be great, but I, I think you'd struggle to get the the same. Um, I guess we the countries probably don't have the same historical camaraderie, but also the mm. the conflict that the you know the the British and Irish you know con, uh, countries have. You know the yeah. England Wales like there's the there's the we we hate each other, but we really sort of like each other as well at the same time, and it's sort of we love to hate each other. We love to hate each other, sort of a thing, <laughs> and you know everyone hates the English, um, and it's just but we all get together for this one thing, and that's what we've agreed to do. It's you know we don't care. It's this red jersey binds us all, and I think you'd struggle to get that initially um, with the Southern Hemisphere, but I think it would be it would be great to see from a from a spectator's point of view. Yeah, so obviously. Fast, fast forward, um, current Australian team, 2019 World Cup, do you think it went as well as it could do? Um, obviously, I was happy with uh, the England game because it was the day my son was born, so he, he, he came into the world on that day, which I was very happy with. But do you think um, they met expectations, exceeded, or do you think they just fell short of what, they, what was expected of them? Um, I think when one thing with Australian sport and particularly rugby, uh, cricket, rugby league to an essence, they're probably the three main international sports from a, from a male point of view, obviously um, the women's rugby and women's netball and, and these sort of football has obviously grown in, in stature in Australia and even um, men's football as well, because uh, we've been at the last, probably since 06 have been in the world cups previous to that. I don't think we've had been in a, the world cup final for a long time. The, particularly rugby, when you go to big sport, the Australian public expect you to win. It's they they don't like that. I mean, they they might think in their back. They don't know if they can win, but the, the expectation is to get as close to winning as possible. Mm. And that's the same with the cricket team. The cricket team. That's what you know. The expectation that's probably built from the success 
of previous teams has been that they'd always get to the final, get close. You know, the semi-finals was a minimum of, for for a rugby world cup. I don't think we'd ever. I think 07 was the first time we'd fallen short of the semi-finals at any world cup. I think, except maybe yeah, or no, 95 we fell to in the quarters. Um, but the expectation was that you you win. So I think the falling out in the quarters is probably seen as underperforming a bit from the Australian public. Now, whether they should have, you know, I think the, they beat Wales in that pool match, then maybe it's a different story. Maybe they do get to the semis. I don't think they were ever going to beat England, unfortunately, on that day. I think England, you know, showed how well they played when they beat Australia and then, then, then obviously beat the All Blacks and probably their English rugby is one of the best ever performances that they've played yeah. ever, yeah. I think I've seen. I mean, like I watched that game and it was... As good as I'd seen a team play in a long, long time. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't think Australia would have were able to do to, to match that sort of brutality and intensity that they played with. Um, but, yeah, I think you ask the guys that played in it, they probably felt that they underperformed and they, could, they should have gone further. So that probably gives you a fair indication of what the, the concept was. They're all, you're always your own worst critic, though, aren't you? I mean, every, the amount yeah. of time, I'm sure everyone here has had it. You've, you've played a game, you've, you've played absolute dog shite. And someone comes no, I've always played, played amazing. Played, mate. You know, I've and he's just saying, amazing. Dog shit. <laughs> I didn't yeah, hear it. Neil you. must get that feeling quite a bit, I imagine. Yeah, dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, sorry, so, sorry, carry on. Yeah. So one, one question from myself is, if you were to pick your all-time front eight from any world, what would be your front eight? That I've played with or just anyone? Just anyone. Who would you have as your pack? As a um, ooh, good question. Um, probably go loose head. I'd play... I generally put James Slipper as our as our loose head. I think he's one of the. I mean, I don't think he's underrated. He's played nearly a hundred tests, but he's mm-hmm. um, generally one of the best genuine rugby players I've played with. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just gets on with it. One of the great teammate that you can have. Um, two, probably. Oh, I remember I, I was, uh, Anton Oliver would probably be the hooker. Um, I remember I got to play against him when I first, he was part of that Highlanders team that sort of had like Carl Hoff, Carl Heyman and him as the front row, um, which was a pretty mean mm. uh, unit to be coming up against as a 19-year-old kid, never played a game of professional rugby in your life, playing them in the trial game at, uh, in New Zealand. So that, you know, probably him as a two and three, um, probably yeah Carl Heyman I think again for the same reason I think he was he was just a destroyer of scrums and mm. that's what he needed um, Locks wanted to be Dan Vickerman um, just purely was lucky enough to play with him for a long time for, for a little bit of uh, my time at the Wallabies and captain him um, genuine Never seen anyone hit rucks as hard as he's hit rucks. Um, genuinely, I just he used to in, you know, polarize people at rucks. I remember in the eleven World Cup in the quarterfinal, he he would have broken um, 
what's his name? The open side for South Africa, the little, he was at Northampton, I've just had a mental blank. Um, oh. oh, short guy, over the ball, number seven. Oh, sorry, I've just had a... <laughs> on Don, we're in Northampton, you should know this. I'm, 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 I'm a Bath fan, mate. I'm a Bath <laughs> fan. Uh, oh, what's his name? I can't, I've just really just, he used to wear a headgear, played for the Cheetahs. I can, I'm, I'm looking at his face. It was Brousseau. Um, Brousseau. Uh, oh. And li- literally would have broken uh, probably about three of his ribs in a legal clean out. I just remember he hit him and, and then I just heard this whelp at the breakdown and this Vic's got to go, so I got him. He's gone. He's not going <laughs> to bother us for the rest of the game. And sure, bit, he got taken off. I think he busted about three of his ribs. Just Ooh. purely from a legal clear out and flip. so, uh, Vix would definitely um, be one, and the other lock. I mean, I'm thinking I'm sort of going with people I've played either against or with um, <laughs> to narrow it down. Otherwise, it's too broad. Probably Victor. Um, just it's nice to have a balance. I mean, Vix is sort of your brute force, and Victor. Best line-out operator I've played against. He's a calm and cool and collected. Yeah, he was. Um, he was. Yeah, I mean, it helped that he had, you know, five, six foot eight guys lifting him every time. So you know, he was a two foot higher than everyone else. But um, his ability to just sort of read and understand what was going on, and it just made life a real menace for you. To, you know, any time you knew you were coming up against either the Bulls or the Springboks, and he was playing. Yeah, used to spend so much more time on analysis on how to break down his defence and what he was doing, and he still couldn't stop what he was doing. So, yeah, I'd probably go with him. Uh, back row uh, six, I'd go with a guy called I don't know if you remember a guy called Hugh McMiniman, played for the Reds and for the Wallabies. His nickname was Madness. Um, <laughs> who is that? I wonder why. I wonder why he was. Um, he was a proper lunatic. Uh, literally, I mean, had so many injuries before, you know, that hampered his international and um, state and rugby career. Went to, ended up playing in Japan for a long time, but he just used to annihilate people. Um, you know, grab the game by the scruff of the necks. You know, played a bit of lock, sort of that sort of tall, ranging six role that I guess, you know, Courtney Law's sort of marrow played. That he was a lot more out of control than those two. Um, but, I don't know Courtney Laws can be out of control sometimes yeah I think Courtney's a bit more measured with what he does this guy was he was proper out of control uh, in a good way guy you're glad he was on your team yeah. Um, so yeah him at six uh, seven uh, it's a tough one because I've been very lucky I mean I, I can't it's very tough <coughs> to go past George Smith um, yeah yeah, as a seven, I mean, he's the best player I've played with, hands down. Yeah. Um, he could literally play anywhere on the um, on a on a on a rugby field and do a job for you. I mean, I think I remember him stepping in at inside centre once in a test match and didn't lose anything. So, <laughs> look, he's the big the the what probably one guy I'd call a freak on a rugby field. He's just a, just an out and out freak. Um, so he's my seven eight. Um, 
Probably Dwayne Demulin. Who? Dwayne Demulin or Todai Kafu. One of those two. Kafu. I mean, Kafu was one of the guys I used to watch growing up. I mean, amazing rugby player. And Genoa. Yeah. Got to play with him a little bit. Um, You know, one of the line of, you know, great Tongan number eights that played for the Wallabies. You know, Willie Offen and Gao, who played there as well. You know, we were very lucky to have some big ball carriers um, through there. So, you know, he was... He was a guy, nine, uh, Will Genya, played a lot of rugby with him, you know, grew up, played, went to the same high school as him, played with his older brother. Um, yeah. So I've known him since he was 13. Um, he'll tell you I used to bully him at school, but he, it's not true. Now <laughs> 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 we need, um, need to get Will on so that we can actually... Uh, yeah, so I, I knew him. He, we were at the same school and obviously I played a lot of rugby with his older brother at high school. So um, Will at nine, Stephen Larkham at 10. Mm-hmm. Lucky okay. to play my first ever test with, with him. Um, just a guy that, I mean, has so much time. Um, oh, we were only doing the eight, weren't we? Now I'm going to 15. Oh, so what? No, no. Oh, no, I mean, yeah, perfect. <laughs> Southern Hemisphere um, 15 coming out. Yeah. So, um, Stephen Larkin, purely just, I've never seen everyone, anyone have so much time on the ball. I mean, even when he used to, was coach for us at the Wallabies for a couple of seasons at the end there, I mean, he used to step in with the opposition and take, and take the starting team, you know, tear the t- starting team to shreds uh, <laughs> as a coach. So, you know, he just was a guy that, just so much time and obviously some big memory, you know, the O, um, the 99 World Cup, hitting that drop goal against South Africa, these sort of things as a kid, you know, that's what I watched. Um, as a 12, it's a tough on this. <clears throat> Actually, no, I've got to go winger. Winger. Is it wing? You, you could pick for winger for Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, probably left wing. Yeah, well, Digby Ioani was probably my pick as, yeah. a, as one of the winger. Purely from the fact that as a forward, I used to love playing with Diggers because he'd come in and help you out. You know, he, he wasn't a winger that sort of just stayed on the wing. He'd always come in and do the hard yards and look for the ball. And I think that's what you want as a forward when you're. When you when you're hanging and you got no not much less to give and you see him pop up and bounce around everywhere and you know he was he was a guy that just had such great leg drive and broke tackles and for fun so he was probably he'd definitely be there somewhere. Um, twelve. Tough one, Mass. Who would be my twelve? Um. I'll come back to 12. I can't really think. 13 would be Conrad Smith. Yeah. Um, just a guy that looked so unassuming on a rugby field, but was so good. <laughs> um, you know, he just did the right thing at the right time. And I think it was sort of that glue that kept that All Blacks back line together. Um, other winger. Who Balance probably. I'd go for two either Rod Davies that played a bit for us at the Reds because I think he balanced out well with Digby. He was just an out and out speed merchant, you know, under underage track. He used to run the hundred and sort of a sub eleven seconds was just pure gas, sort of like a bit like a Johnny May, mm. just out and out speedster that would chase kicks and do all the stuff that 
didn't get much kudos, but then would always be there on the shoulder of anyone that made a break. Um, 15, Chris Latham. Again, probably the, you know, along with George Smith, the guy that was probably had the biggest impact on a rugby tour that I've seen. I mean, he's, in my early years, he used to just take a game by the scruff of the neck and, and basically win it himself. Um, so he was there. 12, I'm going to go back. I can't even think. Probably, yeah, Ma Nonu, you know, yes. the back end of his time with with New Zealand. Um, I think so around that 11, 12 World Cup where he sort of adapted his game a bit, had a bit more passing, a bit more subtlety around it. Mm. It was much more difficult than what he was probably early on when he was just a straight, sort of considered a truck centre. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, one yeah, man on pitch I would not want to go up against. Next. Yeah. So he that, probably those guys. I mean that. I mean that's very southern hemisphere dominated. But um, no, no, that's great. Changes what I'm yeah. going to write in the credits. To yeah, <laughs> goes from world fifteen to southern hemisphere fifteen. Yeah, I've got um, I've got a bit of a situation for you though, James. Uh, we've been there asking. You go. All... We didn't yes. have one before this. No, yes, the same one that I've been asking all the guests. The oh. question that oh. everyone's been that's having. Funny. So sorry to disappoint, J.K. Um, but basically. Uh, the situation is this. You're in lockdown for two weeks, solid. You cannot yeah. leave the house at all, right? You're having yeah. people bring you food. Um, you're not even allowed to go out for your one hour's exercise a day. Right. So, out of everyone you've ever played with, who would make that an absolute living hell? Who would you hate <laughs> to be in the with for two weeks? I just um, remember, and this why? Doesn't, does go out on social media. <laughs> <laughs> you might hear it. It may um, Don't know yet. I'll say... I think it'd make it funny, but also he'd get on your nerves. Is Dave Ward that played with us at Quinns, like really yeah. good mates with him, but he is non-stop, relentless. Like he, I've never met anyone like him. He is just actually from the moment you walk in the door to the end of the day, he is just all go. And I reckon by the time, if you're talking about two weeks lockdown. He yeah. just by the end of it, you just be going, mate. Just shut up. It's like these two with me all the time, but yeah. it's not, we're not in lockdown. They just told you. Yeah, shut no. Up. I think he's actually he has just me- he has point. just me- he has just messaged me. So he's um yeah he's a top boy. I really enjoy Wardy, but <clears throat> I reckon two weeks locked in a room with him might be uh, might be a bit too much. Yeah, I think <laughs> much with anyone to be honest, isn't it? But it's <laughs> an interesting question. So, no, but James, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm doing Dom's job. <laughs> yeah, I was, good. I was just going to do that, but, you know. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could probably sit here and talk for two hours straight. In the- we can best uh, testify to that. He, he can talk for two yeah. hours. <laughs> After, I'm sorry, you can shut up. After the last few podcasts we've done, give over. But, no, I could literally sit here and ask questions for the next two hours quite easily. You've been an absolute player. Legend and um, me growing up watching Southern Hemisphere rugby, you were kind of one of the ones that kind of kept me going, and I've definitely watched it. Dom probably is too young. <laughs> no, uh, it has been an absolute privilege talking to you today. Yeah, thank you no, very much. Thank Perfect. you for having yeah. me on, guys. Appreciate it. Thank no, you. Thanks very much, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you soon. Sounds good, guys. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye.